Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a cooler day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by both Andrew Walls and Melanie Hurd. Andrew and Melanie are co-founders and co-directors of Fresh Thinking Capital, a financial institution based in Leeds, which provides loans to SMEs and entrepreneurs to help them take advantage of various opportunities. Um, Andrew, Mel, very warm welcome to the both of you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Good morning. Good morning. It's a real pleasure to welcome you both onto the airwaves. Um, Normally, we would, of course, dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation in the UK and indeed the wider world, I feel it is appropriate that we start there. Um, It has been a very challenging, a very sensitive time for many. One of the greatest challenges for leaders within our time, I'm sure you'll agree. But just how has it affected you and your operations in recent months? Yes, it's certainly an event that, that nobody could have foreseen happening. And I think the impacts on the economy um, and all sections and everybody in society has been affected by a completely unique event. And I think the, the effects of what's happened is, is going to be felt for many years to come. Um, the uncertainty that's been created around the effects is, is widespread uh, throughout the economy. I think that the challenge is, with such a unique event, there's there's no real rule book of how you deal with it, and everybody is is trying to find the way through um, very uncertain times and what is the best way to deal with circumstances that arrive in every day, every week, every month that are completely unprecedented. Um, I think it's different to any other crisis where in the past there's been specific sections that have been affected, such as the 2008 banking crisis, where that was largely, that largely impacted the funders and financial institutions. This, uh, the, the impact of COVID is far more wide-ranging, and it's got long-term effects on all businesses and all areas of society. And you, when you look at not just businesses and not just economies, but people's lifestyles, you know, we're in a world where the freedoms and, and civil liberties that the people have had in the UK uh, are not there anymore. And I think when people have grown up with those freedoms, to have them taken away, where you, you can only do things at certain times and you can only go to certain places, you can go to um, places abroad to see family or go with friends on holiday and, and um, you know, leisure uh, pastimes that people have taken that have been taken that have been stopped and taken away from them. I think it's it's got wide ranging effects that there's no other event has ever created such a change in society and for something to happen so quickly where people didn't have an opportunity really to to get the head round and understand what was happening. And I think the the challenges of, of what has happened are, are going to they're going to change some parts of the economy and some parts of, of people's lives for for a very long time. And in some cases, things may change forever. Um, and and it's, there's a new way of working and, and a new world that has, has come about in a very short period of time. And mm. Mm. Uh, I think if you think if you think about fresh thinking as a business, 
we very much support entrepreneurs in the UK to fund opportunities where they're looking to create growth. And they take advantage of those opportunities and they tend to be opportunities that come around very quickly. And that might be acquiring a business, acquiring a property, um, doing something fundamental where um, there is, you can see a step change in a particular sector that there is growth. Um, most entrepreneurs at this moment in time are kind of sat there thinking, when is the bottom? Uh, when do we see things start to go to some kind of normality? And actually, is it an opportunity today or will, will it be a better opportunity tomorrow? The uncertainty around that naturally isn't really pressing the growth that we need in the country to, to, to see time through now to carry on. Um, and I think that will be an interesting dynamic over the next sort of six months um, while we see what, what the future holds, really. Mm. And just going back to what Andrew mentioned uh, there, um, working practices are indeed changing. That is something that we've seen during this pandemic. Um, but what features of the lockdown could you envision becoming a permanent part of the way that we do business in this country? I think when you look at the, the working patterns that, that people generally have adopted in, in recent years, I think we... Uh, in our business, we've been very keen to provide a flexible working environment. So we have we have always allowed our staff to um, work at home where where needed, um, and we've always given flexibility. So it's not been people don't have to be in the office doing a nine to five job because the nature of our business it, it's a twenty four seven business where we can have opportunities that come in for. Uh, a funding requirement and it may come in on a Friday afternoon at, at five o'clock, we will then need to move very quickly to be able to understand the opportunity, probably pull a report together and information that we require over the weekend to be able to go and visit the, the business on a Monday morning. So people will work over the weekend knowing that we've got deadlines to meet to make something happen. So we've always had a very flexible working environment where people have never been, have always had that flexibility. I think one thing we did notice when we when lockdown started, we, we'd gone from people being in the office probably 75%, 80% of the time during the week and, and the other time maybe out visiting businesses or working from home. When people went into lockdown and they were spending all the time at home, I think we did notice it did have a detrimental effect on the team, you know, in terms of the, the conversation. We're doing regular Zoom calls with them and we're having regular conversations with all members of the team to make sure everybody was okay and, and coping with um, the, the situation that people were involved with. But we did notice the negative effect on people's mental well-being and positivity around you know their everyday life. And I think one thing that is very clear that has come out of it, that as we've returned to the office, as we did um, at the start of July, in a very, on a reduced basis, in a controlled manner, complying with, with the advice and the direction that was given, we've noticed that people's mindset has improved and people have really benefited from being in the office. And the benefits you get out of being in the office, you don't have to be in the office every day, but, but you can't underestimate the, the benefits of a team. Of, of talking to people, especially the younger members of the team, from a training and education point of view, 
you can pass on advice and guide them through certain situations that if they're doing that remotely, it's a lot harder for them. And I think we've seen, we've certainly come to the conclusion that working from home permanently is not a way that our business is going to be able to operate. And I think a lot of businesses may not have come to that conclusion yet, but I think over time as people return to the office, they will see the benefits of that. And if businesses, you know, uh, have the intention of not going back to the office or um, people working full-time from home, I think that will have a detrimental effect on their employees and the businesses longer term. So I don't think it's going to be a solution that some of the people, you know, that the press are talking about, you know, is this going to be a permanent fixture where people are working from home full-time? I don't think that is, is realistic and is, is going to be the way forward to come out of this. I think there's got to be a mixture. Maybe some businesses won't need the office mm. capacity that they've had in the past, but I think there's going to have to be a mixture of working from home and working in the office. Just elaborating on the impact that it could have on the mental well-being of employees, just how important do you see mental health being in leadership, both in terms of safeguarding that of the people you work with, but also your own as well, because leaders have to shoulder a lot of responsibility during a crisis such as this? I think my view is you need that toolkit, and, and the toolkit is very much, yes, we're a leader in business, we have responsibilities for staff in terms of well-being uh, we certainly have it for ourselves also but I do believe that a good leader can differentiate themselves when it comes to mental well-being and they are prepared um, in terms of having that toolkit to be able to deal with situations and certainly Andrew and I um, being co-founders of the business we've, we've worked together for a long time and some people describe us very much as a top and a bottom in that we have strength of different skill sets where we gel together. And there's there's no end of time regularly on a daily basis that we're talking about things. And part of that is very much about the team, but it's also about ourselves in terms of how do we see the future? What do we think we're going to do in terms of dealing with this from a family perspective? Um, we've, we've both got children and obviously we suffered um, in the lockdown in terms of children being at home and homeschooling, et cetera. And also times in a day where we are fortunate that we do have home offices, um, but there was interruptions in terms of children coming in and not quite understanding why they're at home and why we're at home working. So when you, when you actually look at it from a leader perspective, yes, I am... Um, uh, perhaps a bit of a geek that very much studies um, the psychology side of things and very much the psychometric profiling of staff, etc., making sure we're doing things that we should do to personalities. Um, and, and that's been a huge part through this. Um, the first day that we had back as a team meeting up together, uh, we did notice that one of our colleagues very much suffered through that period of lockdown, he looked very pale, he'd lost weight, um, and, and it was something that everybody could see in the team. So we were first to rally around that and, and make sure everything was okay. Um, and he's, he's now back to um, himself and, and looking the part that he's always played. So I do think absolutely 
mental well-being is, is certainly something from a leadership perspective that should be at the forefront of, uh, of any leader's uh, toolkit. And just touching on a couple of the things that you mentioned there as well, with regards to your sort of personal leadership model, if we call it that, it sounds as if it's a very collaborative approach that yourself and Andrew choose to take, one that's very much based on open communication. Yeah, so <laughs> I think if we look back at our experience, we've, we've worked in the corporate world and we've worked for ourselves um, for the best part of uh, since 2007, really. Um, you take all the good bits from the corporate world in terms of discipline, uh, structures, very much strategic, looking at the helicopter view of business, etc. But put all that to one side, fundamentally within business, it's very much about people. And you need your team to be on your side. And the feeling of togetherness, we very much have a flat structure um, it's a less serious approach, very much personal style. Um, the mentality of we come to work, we absolutely work hard, but we absolutely play hard as well. Mm. And getting that balance in terms of colleagues have natural respect for who we are as leaders of the business. But also at the same time, uh, we're very much focused around empowering them. So we recruit people very much on their skill set, on what they can contribute to the business um, in terms of their skill set. And we, we, we try to go for the best people in that field um, and then empower them in the business to be the best that they want to be. Um, pretty simply, the door is open. They can speak to us about anything at any time. We're very much integrated in the business. Um, social aspect is important. We're always thinking Every month we obviously put COVID to one side. We, we meet up as a team and we do something socially that they want to do. Um, classic example, last week, um, our team actually wanted to say thank you to us um, for supporting them through this period um, of, of COVID. Um, and, and they took us out for lunch, uh, which was nice. Uh, they also recognised that it was a three-year anniversary for uh, Fresh Thinking in terms of cooperation and presented us with a nice picture of, of, of memories of the team, really. And I think we, we're proud to sit back and think, actually, our style of leadership is enough to do what we need to do to keep the business focused, to carry on into the future, and at the same time empowers the guys to feel totally on board be what they want to be and also steer the ship um, with with their own style. It just goes to show, doesn't it, that when you're in a leadership role, for any younger viewers that might be listening to this who are thinking of starting their own businesses, one of the best things that you can do is to surround yourself with good people, positive people. And I'd also, of course, like to wish you my own congratulations as well to the business for that three-year anniversary. Hopefully there will be uh, many more to come. Um, and if we switch focus um, just from um, sort of stuff for a moment, um, basically the business Fresh Thinking Capital, you work a lot with um, SMEs and entrepreneurs. Um, what is it that really inspires you about SMEs, entrepreneurial spirit? And what is it that you're really passionate about in working in this area? If you think about the UK economy, the lifeblood is very much about the SMEs and 
And again, going back to people, what creates good business is very much people. And one of the main things that entrepreneurs like to do is, is feel empowered to make their own decisions. Sometimes, well, there's no sometimes, always, they need a toolkit to be able to do that. So there's the increments of what would be their business they're very good at and know their industry inside out. What goes with that, naturally, is some element of funding. And when Andrew and I formed Fresh Thinking, again, we tried to sit back, because obviously we've got um, backgrounds of restructuring, corporate finance, equity, etc. cetera. Um, with, I think with the changes of the 2008 um, crisis and the, 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 the funding landscape, it completely changed, and there was born the alternative lenders. Now, we sat back and thought, what is it that entrepreneurs, SMEs, business owners require from the funding landscape? And, it, and it's very much, again, backing themselves in terms of the decisions that they make to create um, the wealth within that business and, and carry on growing. So our concept of funding was very much about putting a platform together that allowed them to take the funding to basically back their decision. And with backing their decision, they were effectively putting collateral behind that to take the funds and supporting them with their decision-making progress over the next sort of six to 24 months to do what they wanted to do on the tin. Now, the UK needs the lifeblood of SMEs and entrepreneurs. And we didn't want to be a hindrance with a tick box exercise of actually, if you do this funding or take this, it has to look like this and doesn't quite fit the box. We wanted to be a blank canvas of, here's a facility, this is what you could do with it, and actually take it to the level that you want. So um, going back to the question, entrepreneurs need to be empowered to create growth in this country for us to come through difficult times like the banking crisis, come through difficult times like COVID. Because actually, psychologically, many people could be scarred by this. But what we want is those entrepreneurs, SMEs and leaders for today to be sat there thinking, I can see through this. I know what the future holds. Let's take this funding. Let's back this opportunity. Let's be empowered by it. Um, and let's move forward. So I think, um, again, it comes down to the principles of people appreciating what they are, backing their good ideas and less red tape in terms of legislation and tick boxing and, and, and creating those uh, platforms for them to uh, to flourish. And that's going to be more important now than it ever has been before over the coming months, because it is going to certainly be a challenging time for businesses. And I would like to talk about that immediate future before we do wrap things up on the uh, programme today. Um, We do know, of course, that over the next 12 months, we'll have to continue to adjust to this new normal. But over that period of time, what is on the horizon for Fresh Thinking Capital and its activities? And where do you see the business being in this time next year? Yeah, I think obviously where where fresh thinking will be will also be driven by the wider economy and, and the effects of what is going on generally uh, within the economy and, and the country as well. I think that the next six months is very difficult to see beyond lots of turmoil, lots of uncertainty, um, very difficult to make decisions given that uncertainty. So I think the next six months, certainly the rest of 
2020 and, and probably Q1 21, I think that there is going to be lots of um, turbulence in the markets and turbulence in the economy. I think there's going to be a significant upturn in business failures um, where businesses at the moment are probably being supported by government, the, the furlough scheme and other, um, other government funding, um, support around delaying payments of um, PAYE and, and VAT. Probably creditors taking a relaxed view with some businesses at the moment, knowing that um, they don't want to be pulling the, the business down because they may not get any, anything. Um, so I think, you know, at the moment we're in a, a false world where nothing is really happening and everybody's just holding on to see what's going to happen. So I, I think that probably for the next six months that's going to be the case. I would hope that when we get to the middle of next year and we start getting towards the end of Q2 next year, that we have got some certainty returning, that we have got some visibility about what the future will look like. And I think that will then give opportunities to people and entrepreneurs providing, as, as Mel alluded to, the, 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 right, um, the right structure is there for businesses to grow and to allow them to employ people and allow them to deliver growth. That's when our funding and what, how we can support businesses will become very important. And that, it'll be at that point where I think for fresh thinking, we will see plenty of opportunities where entrepreneurs will be coming to us and saying, I've seen this business. I'm now confident what the future looks like. I want to acquire this business. I want to acquire this asset. I've won this contract, but I need to be able to raise funding to be able to deliver this contract. I want to recruit another 20 people into the business to grow. It'll be at that point where our funding will be needed and we will be able to then react to that and support those businesses to deliver their business plans. I think the, there's probably never been a time where the right decisions need to be made by government because the, there's never been a situation where the country is, is in the position it's in. And I think we're at a point where the decisions need to be made to support the economy and to support businesses and entrepreneurs and SMEs, that they have the right incentives and the right support around them to be able to deliver the business plans. Because we're in a world now where whoever provides the infrastructure and the opportunities will attract the investment. And where, if, if the UK, especially given the, the effect of Brexit and what that is going to look like, the UK government has to take a lead and has to support those businesses and attract the investment because the government can't fund the country out of the current position. It needs private investment to do that and it needs people that want to create jobs and create value. And if those decisions are taken in a positive way and the right infrastructure and the, the right regulation is there to allow businesses to flourish, the UK will benefit from that. If it doesn't, the money will go elsewhere, the investment will go elsewhere, and the growth will go elsewhere. And that will be very dangerous, and that will have a knock-on effect for generations to come. And I think it's, it really is at the point, if, if the right decisions, there's never been a time in history where the, the decisions made in the next 12 months will have a massive impact on what the next 50 years looks like. And it's a pivotal moment for the right decisions to be made because we're coming out of a, a unique situation that 
it's critical that businesses can flourish and thrive and that the, the economy will then get back on its feet and jobs will be created and standards of living will go up and we will be in a much better place to deal with the future if that is the case. Mm, we certainly will be. It's ironic for me, really, because I, if you think, I, I was 40 this year. My my life from a young age, um, uh, I, I started working in a, a corporate world when I was 18. I've only ever known business. My passion, my hobby, everything about me is business. And any conversation that I have in my life always migrates back to business. And if you follow the UK economy in terms of the leaders, what we produce in the UK is phenomenal. And this is probably perhaps the first time in, in, in ever in my career to actually think and sit for a minute and think, what is the consequence of this? And I guess going back to the 2008 crisis, we've always been able to be in control of that. This is something totally unprecedented. It's a virus that has major consequences to people, human beings, economy, etc. And perhaps there was doubt in my mind for, for a snapshot. And I said to Andrew, this is the first time I feel not in control. And as a person that always wants to be in control, it was a very difficult, uh, I guess, 24, 24 hours of, of a thought process that a question, ordinarily I wouldn't think like that. I'd quickly dust myself down and think, actually, no, in every scenario, what this business, what the country needs are people like ourselves to keep driving forward. And I think if there's any key message that comes out of today, it is very much let's empower the leaders, the entrepreneurs of this country to keep fighting. And eventually there will be a time that we do come out of this and we need to be stronger uh, empowering SMEs and decision makers to, to carry on. Um, and we will be a key part of that toolkit to be able to do that. Um, so, mm. as I say, for, for us, nothing has changed. We'll, we'll ride this storm, and the storm will eventually be a storm in a teacup that we put that lid on and we move to the next chapter in life. And I certainly wish you all of the luck in the world in helping businesses through this tempestuous time that we're going through at the moment. Um, We are just about out of time on today's programme, but I have to say, Andrew, Melanie, it's been a real, real pleasure having the both of you join us on the uh, the show today. And I actually think, just given that there are still so many variables in the way this could go, it would be wonderful to welcome both of you back onto the programme at some point in this next 12 months, just to see how things are getting on at Fresh Thinking Capital, but also so we can reassess then just how far we've come as a country in that time. Yeah, look forward to it. Yeah, that will be good. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. It's been wonderful having you both with us today. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in future, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on. The same to yourself, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I was speaking on today's programme to Andrew Walls and Melanie Hurd, co-founders and co-directors of Fresh Thinking Capital. Um, I would also reiterate that last message there to everybody tuning into this today. Do please continue to think of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives during this time. Um, coming up next on the programme today, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. During his playing career, 
a successful one at that. Sir Andrew became just one of three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, he spent a period of time as director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and has become a champion for mental health and charitable concerns. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew. And that will be coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Tresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Tresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive 
um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but uh, i did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was 
I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become a focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm -hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna to have to dig pretty deep but i think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if i'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this mm. and so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing the idea of well we can do something that's never been done before here and i've got the opportunity to to play my part in that so um you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous... Can it be players when players and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think <laughs> there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever so you know th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed there's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world um there's some people that are very quiet uh there's some people that are you know p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them um but th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but. What advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I definitely had many. 
um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job um okay so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the world cup on home soil in yes. 2019 uh i was firstly i was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in world cups and this includes my time as captain we just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were 
googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah well so <laughs> was, was I yeah. actually yeah <laughs> absolutely um now Andrew, in your in your wife's memory you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year uh, in doing so whether you'd admit it or not yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands husbands and wives mothers and fathers sons and daughters please do take some time if you wouldn't mind and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. 
Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney in australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i will I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.